0: Wonderful. Thank you uh, very much, uh, musicians. Thank you, Derek, for leading us this morning. And uh, thank you, Hugh and uh, Claire. It's really great to have you guys helping out this morning. And it's uh, wonderful to welcome you all here on the cusp of a new year. Um, I suppose I can be the first to Wish you a merry, happy new year. I'm never quite sure when that actually happens, whether it should be tomorrow, but I'm going to do it anyway. Happy new year. It's really, really great uh, to see all of you here, especially if you're new and you're visiting and you've been around for Christmas. It's really wonderful to see you. It's great to see old friends back as well and new faces. As Derek said, please do stay behind uh, for a time to chat and to have tea and coffee after the service. Um, that, would be, uh, that would be great. But uh, in this odd Sunday, cramped between Christmas and new year in the... Midst of post-Christmas confusion, where we often don't know where we are or what day it is, this week does give us a chance uh, to break away from the madness of Christmas and before the madness of the new year hits to, if nothing else, reflect on the year past and to rightly contemplate the year to come and to give good Uh, Space and time to that. It's for that reason, uh, the reflective break between the old year and the new year, that we culturally have New Year's resolutions. I am terrible at New Year's resolutions because I'm so weak-willed, I sort of know I'll never actually achieve them, so I never make them in the first place, so you can't fail, which I think is probably the best way to approach the year. To, To a certain extent, that's not a very helpful way of looking at the new year. I know that there are things that I personally need to work on. And that's a good thing for me to be contemplating. That's what the new year allows us to do. It allows us to think about what it is that we'd like to change or to do differently and, and begin to put those into practice. And God willing, um, I will as, as we all strive uh, for progress in godliness in different areas of our lives. But this morning, on the eve of a new year, I want to consider as a church and as Christians that perhaps the one thing we need to resolve to do in the new year as far as the gospel is concerned is to remind ourselves of the things that need to remain the same, the things which shouldn't change, the things that we need to keep going in. And I don't mean that we don't do new things this year or have new gospel vision as a church or, or roll out new plans for the church or change things up and bring in new initiatives etc, etc, etc. or indeed, personally working at things that we need to work on in our individual lives. all of those are good and necessary and right. Those are things that we should and must and will be looking at and spending a lot of time on, I hope and pray, over the course of this new year, over the course of this term and as we walk through 2024. But in the midst of all that activity and change, and before we get to all that activity and change, today, in the time of reflection that we have this morning, I think it's very wise to consider what should never change what should never be altered, what should always be the same. And that ultimately is our walk with the Lord Jesus through life to the very end of it. Our focus and direction as Christians to keep going with Jesus, to keep him in view on whom we depend for everything, and to never change course from that purpose, to, to never change course from him. And that is what the Psalms of Ascent do for us as we come to Psalm 127 this morning. Uh, The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms of resolve, if you like, to keep the pilgrim, the, the, the believer, going and to not change course as far as our progress in the gospel is concerned. They are calls for us to keep being dependent on God, to keep him in view, to keep him at the heart of everything that we do and aim to achieve, to keep aiming for God's future house and to not turn away from him. The uh, Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 to 134. You'll see the little postscript. If you have your Bibles open, that's really helpful. You'll see the postscript in your Bibles above each of those Psalms. You'll see it above our Psalm this morning, Psalm 127, a a Psalm or a Song of Ascent. And the uh, Psalms of Ascent are all preoccupied with one thing mainly, and, and that is to encourage these pilgrims who are ascending the hill of the Lord to visit the temple of God in Jerusalem. You see, each of the uh, Psalms of Ascent were meant to be sung by Israel's pilgrims as they literally ascended the hill on which Jerusalem sits as they head to God's house uh, to worship in the temple. They were Psalms of joy and encouragement and challenge and charge that reminded the pilgrims that they were almost there that they're soon to to have made it, that soon they will be near the presence of God himself in the Holy of Holies, at the heart of God's city where God resided with his people. It was a a beautiful and profound moment, an awesome moment for the people of God to be able to ascend that hill, to to get to that temple, to be near the presence of, of that God, the living God of Israel himself, in God's house. And so these psalms spur on the pilgrim, the believer, to continue the pilgrimage, to to keep going, keep getting up that final hill to God himself. As, As hard as that hill was literally to climb, it was very, very steep. These psalms encourage the pilgrim to continue going until their final destination is reached, to not look past their resting place, to not look beyond their God, to not give up, to not change course. And so these psalms encourage us this morning in that very same endeavour, on that very same pilgrimage, as we ascend the difficult and rocky steep hill of this life to God's house, to God's present. No, no longer in a temple for us in the future, but, but in, etern- in eternity, finally, with him in the life to come. That's the house that we're aiming for, isn't it? And as we face a new year of more change, we are encouraged to keep going, to to not turn away from that walk to God's house, not change direction, but to resolve to keep moving forwards to him, to our final resting place, our home. And that is very much what our psalm of ascent, Psalm 127, does for us this morning as we sit on the cusp of the new year and as we think about what we want to resolve to do in 2024. For How does this psalm encourage us in our journey as we climb the difficult hill of our lives to our final destination to God's house? Well, it encourages us on that journey by reminding us and charging us not to neglect the means by which we get to the future house of God. And that is by working hard for the building of God's house on earth in the present. And trusting on no one other than God to see his work on his house here complete. For that is what Psalm 127 is totally preoccupied with, isn't it? The building of God's house on earth and the fruit that comes from that when we allow God himself to be the chief builder. And that brings us to our first point of just two quickly this morning, where we see that verses 1 and 2... All gospel labor is in vain without Jesus, the builder. Just read those first two opening verses with me. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, this psalm... Is a Psalm of Solomon, if you've noticed that. If you look at the postscript above, it says a Song of Solomon, and this tells us everything about how we are to read this psalm this morning. For before we go anywhere, we have to remind ourselves of who Solomon was. This really helps as we unpack this psalm. King Solomon was none other than the great builder of the temple in Jerusalem, wasn't he? He physically built God's house in Jerusalem. And the point is a simple one here. Unless the Lord is intimately involved in the building of his house on earth, and unless he is the architect and the chief engineer, the the head builder and the master craftsman of his own house, his own temple where his own presence resides, then all the human work, says Solomon, put into building it will be in vain. It, It just won't work. The house will not be built at all in reality, and God will not live in it. That's his point. And that's very much what God did through Solomon, didn't he? God first handpicked his own helper builder. And that was Solomon himself, King's son, King David's son. King David, if you remember, if we're, we're going to go back in 1 Samuel and we're going to see a lot of this over the course of this year. King David wanted to build God's house, but God said no. God wanted to be in charge over who was to build his house, this important task. And he chose Solomon. And so after God handpicks his helper builder, and as Solomon ascends to the throne of Israel, now ready to build God's temple for the first time, Who gave Solomon the wisdom to build it? God did. So he not only handpicks his helper builder, but he gives his helper builder the tools to complete the job. You see, building God's house on earth isn't like building any old house, in other words. It has to be fit for the king of the world, the presence of the God of the universe. And so he decides how that's going to happen and how that's going to work. It makes sense. But if you go back even further into the Bible, back to to Leviticus, after God has saved his people from Egypt in Exodus, when God's temple was the tabernacle at the time, a simple tent where God's presence resided, who gave all the instructions for his house then? God did. It was God who wrote the physical parameters of his house. It was God who gave all the dimensions and the types of materials that was to be needed. It was God who described every detail of what his house was to, to look like, even down to the designs of the tops of the pillar, how, how square the Holy of Holies was going to be, even to what the Ark of the Covenant was going to look like, what it was going to contain. And these raw things that were incorporated into Solomon's final temple. Can, can you see what's going on here? God's house on earth is intimately God's house. God is intimately involved in every single tiny detail. He is living there. He designs it. He builds it. He inspires those who work with him. He equips those who work for him. He is the master craftsman. He finishes it all off. And Solomon follows the chief architect's instruction to the letter. And and so Solomon's work was not in vain. God's house is built because God did the work. And because of that, there is gospel fruit in Israel. God is promoted in Israel. He is worshipped in Israel. He, He brings peace and prosperity to Israel in that time to his people like never before in the history of God's people through his house, which everyone in the world suddenly wanted to visit as people from the nations descended on Jerusalem to know the living God. And so can you see how we can begin to read this psalm for ourselves this New Year's Eve? For this psalm is different for us, isn't it? That's really important. God no longer resides in a temple made by human hands. God's house is no longer the temple in Jerusalem. There isn't one. And the temple is definitively not this physical bricks and mortar building here in Bridge Road. Psalm 127 isn't telling us to get on our hands and knees and physically build up space like Solomon was tasked to do, as that might be something that we actually do do, perhaps, here over the course of this year. But cast your minds back to just a few weeks ago. What did 1 Timothy tell us was God's house on earth? It is his church. Us who are 1 Timothy 2, 15 to 16, God's household, the pillar and buttress of the truth. We are God's house. The temple of the living God is now the church of the living God. You see, God's new house, since Jesus came that first Christmas and died and rose again and ascended into heaven that first Easter is us. God's house on earth is now the body of billions of believers across the globe in which God's presence now resides by the Spirit. It's, here, it's us here in this small ch- church on the edge of a big city, the handful of us that have believed on Jesus and who now have the Spirit of Jesus indwelling in us. That is what God's house on earth is. And with that being the case, the implications of this, this psalm are very clear. Unless we are built up together with God as our chief architect, as our chief engineer, as the head builder, as the master craftsman, unless he is the one who plans, whose plans we follow, unless he is the one who gives us his wisdom and strength to do his work, unless we are willing to follow his instructions, and unless it is him who gives us the tools and the equipping to complete his tasks, unless he is indwelling us with his spirit, which gives wisdom and strength and comfort and purpose, and unless we are totally depending on him alone for everything, then we just aren't going to last very long at all this new year. In that case, we are all building a church, a a pretend house of God, if you like, in vain. It's very clear that the building of God's house in Psalm 127 is an encouragement in our work to build God's house here on earth. And, and that work is simply summed up in the simple, biblical, faithful gospel ministry that we should all be doing day in, day out as God's household in this community. And so can you see that this means that this year, in our wanting to see God's house on earth built and flourish and produce fruit, in our plans and gospel vision, in our strategy and desires and designs and dreams for the future of the church here in Collington, for for God's church universally across the world, in in our personal development and advancement, in our godliness, our personal holiness, our gospel progress in our lives following this Lord Jesus individually as believers... If all of that work and desire and planning does not involve Jesus, if it's not centred and dependent on and driven by Jesus, the chief architect, then all of our plans and our work is going to be in vain. Our gospel statements, our vision strategies, our Bible studies, our preaching, it'll all be for nothing. Our work may produce a lot of effort and activity, verse 2. If you notice that, we'll be busy and exhausted, getting to bed later and later, getting up earlier and earlier, eating our food more and more anxiously, desperately trying to work harder to get something to stick, to get anything to work, to get any program to succeed, charging around like headless chickens, squawking at each other in increasingly mindless panic. But what it will not produce is fruit, gospel fruit, the kind of fruit that God's house produces, the kind of fruit that God's temple under Solomon produced. The fruit of sinners coming to know peace with God himself through forgiveness. The fruit of people being made prosperous, not with money, but with being filled with the saving power of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of us believers and pilgrims being charged more and more with God's Spirit and his task to go and save people in the earth. People who are charged more and more to be the likeness of Jesus our Savior. The fruit of sending out the gospel into this community. The fruit of sending out gospel people into the harvest field in the world. That was everything that the temple did and was meant to do for Israel. Now, unless the Lord builds his house on earth, then those things will not happen. God's house will not be built. We are laboring and toiling and sweating for no good purpose. I wonder if anyone knows what the motto of Edinburgh City is. Does anyone know this? It is Nisi Dominus Frustra which sounds very grand and dramatic, and anything in Latin sounds very grand and dramatic. Uh, But it means, accept the Lord in vain, or literally, without the Lord, frustration. And those three words are the opening words of verse 1 of Psalm 127 in Latin. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. And it's a great motto for a city from a time-long past where Edinburgh was at the heart of the the greatest mission and gospel advancement in the West, where her founders understood who was really in charge in the world and and what progress and success really looked like. The the powers that be in the city chose this verse to be our city's motto. Isn't that incredible? You see, the city's founders realised one gloriously simple truth, that without God there is no advancement or progress or any successful journey home to our final city. Without God leading things and building his house on this earth in the city of Edinburgh, there is no future for the city of Edinburgh. And it really should be our motto too here at Redeemer, shouldn't it? For the same reason, unless the Lord builds his house, unless everything we do is about him, unless we are a church that is faithful to and dependent on and thirsty for the simple gospel of the Lord Jesus, unless we are people wanting to be filled with the Spirit, working in his strength, then we're toiling in vain. We are merely rearranging the deck chairs, On the Titanic, we're we're blowing against the wind, we're making chocolate teapots. It's all pointless, it's vain, it's futile, It's, it's frustrating. And goodness is the city of Edinburgh, a picture of that futility. It is a city that has lost the heart of its own motto. A city that decries and despises the God of eternity. A city that has turned its back on the God who built her. A city whose watchmen, verse 2, are protecting it in vain, not noticing she has already been overrun. A city whose people are running around like headless chickens, working harder, going to bed later, waking earlier, and yet being further away from their dreams of success and prosperity and peace than they have ever been. More and more harried, more and more unhappy, more and more divided. A city that is toiling in vain for a future it cannot reach with tools that it does not have, trusting in gods that will not help. It is a city that has very definitively turned from a path that was known worldwide for its desire to encourage God's pilgrims to keep going until they reach God's house, known as the land of the book, to a city that has now radically changed, that has resolved with each new passing year to not keep going, to give up the pilgrimage of climbing the hill of the Lord to give up the fight for the work of the gospel, to give up the desire to reach the destination of her saviour. May we resolve this new year and every year to never be such a church, a church that loses the heart of Psalm 127, a church that has its lampstand removed in Revelation. May this year and every year be the chance that we resolve to keep things the same in that sense. May our New Year's gospel resolutions forever be to stick to the same gospel, to never depart from Scripture, to never turn away from Jesus and where He is, to always endure, to always be singing psalms of ascent as we are always moving step by step up the hill of the Lord in our walk with the Lord to the house of the Lord. And what does that walk look like? What does building God's house in his strength and with his leadership look like? Well, for a start, are we a church that resolves every new year to be a constantly praying church? Are we individuals resolved to be praying individuals in our personal lives every single day? That really matters. If there is anything that shows what dependence on the master builder looks like, it is through our seriousness and our constancy in prayer. Without praying, we are building God's house in vain. We're like the watchman, verse 2, pretending to guard over his house, but we've really abandoned our posts. Are we a church that has resolved every new year to be constantly measuring everything that we do by God's word and founding everything we do on God's word, personally and as a church? Will we always be faithful Bible-believing, Bible-handling, Bible-preaching and a a training church? Will our love for reading the Bible mark us out as individuals, the word of God literally being the handbook and the instruction manual of the master builder? We need to know it, and we need to love it. Are we a church that is resolving every year to build up believers, reach unbelievers, deal with sin seriously, love the broken deeply and sacrifice willingly, all for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of each other, and for the sake of Jesus? Are we a church that resolves every new year to refuse to buckle when tempted to water down the gospel? We're not going to change as far as that is concerned. Uh, Are we a church that welcomes everyone to know Jesus regardless of who they are? Are we a church that will be unashamed of the gospel which is the power for salvation for all who believe? And are we a church that does not rely on the gods of the age to get us there, material possessions, success, earthly affirmation, but relies on our crucified and risen saviour to do it for us? For those are the marks of a gospel church that is fit for purpose, of a church that is desperate for Jesus to be building his house on earth and desiring to see his plans enacted for his purposes in his world, which is to bring eternal peace and security and prosperity to lost, dying, and frantic souls. For if we do that, if we are working at those marks of gospel constancy, if we're never changing from that, then intriguingly, what is it we are promised at the end of verse 2? sleep. Isn't that wonderful? Good sleep. A good night's sleep. That makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It's the opposite of toiling ourselves to distraction and frustration, waking up early, getting to bed late. It means I can quite literally fall asleep at night and entrust Redeemer and and, and God's church worldwide, God's house to God. Trusting fully that God has his house sorted and cared for and looked after. You see, as we work hard this year for the gospel, and we do need to to do that, Solomon had to work very hard for the completion of God's house in the earth in order for gospel fruit to be made. He had to draft in thousands of workers for the job, and all of them gave their time and muscle and skill willingly to that work. It was hard, but it wasn't Solomon's burden to see it completed. It was God's, and Solomon realized that. He realized it wasn't in his strength he was doing it. It was in God's strength, and so despite his work, he could sleep at night. His toil, which we all have to endure for the sake of the gospel, was good toil. It was toil where he knew his God was taking all the weight of his purposes on his shoulders and not Solomon's, and Solomon could sleep well at night. Are we a church that can sleep well at night? Well, we might well be weary after a long year in church of dealing with all sorts of things, with spiritual headaches, spiritual highs, or battling sin, falling into temptation, striving to progress in godliness, fending off issues, dealing with difficult studies. But where after that toil I see it might have been hard. I see I might have made lots of mistakes which I have to bow the knee to God over and repent of. But that all of that toil and effort was not in vain despite my failures, I can ultimately sleep well at at night and and every night, entrusting God's house to him, leaving God's work to him, waking up in the morning, continuing to work hard for him, under him as we do his work, of building his house and his strength, by his spirit standing on his word for his sake, desiring his purposes for us, for his glory. And that all brings us very quickly to our last point of this psalm, which are the last three verses. For as we come on the home straight, the question now is, what does building God's house on earth physically look like? In that, it's obviously not putting bricks on top of bricks, so what is it? What do all those things we've just looked at, prayer, faithful Bible reading, loving God's word, dedication to mission, evangelism, what do they achieve? Why are those things important in building God's house, rather than us picking up mortarboards and trowels? Well, very simply, and as strange as the second half of this psalm might seem at first, all these endeavours point to the glorious truth that gospel gain is found not in bricks and mortar, rather point to true gospel gain is becoming children of Jesus the warrior. Just read with me those last few verses again, and we'll get into exactly what this final bit is saying. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, it seems that Solomon has totally changed tack here, and he's now talking about something completely different. He's not. He's still talking about God's house. And the analogy is actually a very simple one as we draw to a close, for it's true, isn't it, that children are to be a blessing to families. And as much as we have a very, very low opinion of family in our culture, we still understand the benefits and joy that children bring. Even the most ardent secularist who has their first child cannot help take reams of pictures of them. And as we as Christians understand more why children are beautiful things, because, verse 3, they're not just anything, they're a heritage from the Lord. We understand that. Each life is born not just from chance, but out of God's hand, given for our good. They are a fruit of a woman's womb, to be loved and enjoyed and protected. We spend a lot of time looking at why that's a beautiful thing for, 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 for womanhood in the earth, as, as that's exemplified in Genesis one And in Solomon's day, this was even more the case, not just because they had a much higher view of family under the living God, who grows his people through his people's children, but because a man's children was the way in which he was protected. In an age before police, a man's sons were quite literally his guard, verse 4. They were his arrows, and so it makes sense that Solomon is professing blessing over those who have children who arm their families and give them protection in the world. That's a good gift of God, says Solomon, the man who has a quiver full of arrows. Many children on which to call for help and support and love and protection and growth. He is like a warrior who is established in the land, who is able to defend his family and his interests from his enemies at the gate. And with that in mind, can you see the reason why Solomon is saying this off the back of the language of building God's house? For he's still on the same topic, but he's now moved from bricks to babies, from concrete to kids, the real building blocks of God's house. For what is the ultimate aim of the temple on God's hill? It was to produce gospel fruit in God's people, as we've already seen, in order to bring more people to know the living God. In other words, the aim of the temple was to make babies, spiritual babies, spiritual children, spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham, who when coming in repentance and faith to the God of Israel, regardless of where in the world they came from, they would become children of the promise. They would become Israel, God's people, God's family. And is that not exactly how God's house on earth is built today? Is that not exactly the same aim For the church. For how is the church built? What is it that should be our priority as a church as we seek to build God's house on earth here at Redeemer through seeing people become children of God who come to Jesus and are, what is the language of the New Testament? Born again. That is the building blocks of God's house on earth. Not material success, not buildings, not empire building with big fat churches full of unchanged people hearing a non-gospel and being comfortable in their sin but people who are challenged and charged to turn their lives on their heads and invited to follow the king, to become children of the king. Those are the building blocks of the church. And as soon as we recognize that, this whole psalm makes complete sense because this can be really hard for some of us to hear because what about those who don't have children? Where's their blessing? What about for, for those for whom this is a very, very difficult passage to read? Well, wonderfully, this psalm isn't actually about us. It's not about my children. It's about Jesus' children. You see, the man in this psalm that Solomon is talking about now suddenly becomes very clear. For who ultimately is the blessed man who has billions of children, who act as arrows in his quiver, who are fired out into the world to establish his kingdom, which he will see dominate the globe like the almighty warrior that he is? It is Jesus. He is the warrior dad in Psalm 127, you see. He is the one who, with his church at his side and his children whom he has saved in his wake, will not be put to shame in front of his enemies on the last day. It is he who dealt the fatal blow to Satan on the cross and in his resurrection, bringing many sons to glory. It is he who will defeat Satan and sin finally once and for all with his people fighting with him. It is he who will build up his church in the earth with his children, who will go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, who by his power and spirit will make disciple babies in the world. It is Jesus who builds his church, his house in the earth through his children, whereby not even the gates of hell will be able to stand against it. The question is, are we a church that lives and dies by that truth each and every year? Our New Year's Gospel Resolution this year is strikingly simple. It's Jesus or bust. Are We resolved as children of God to keep our aim in focus as we walk through this life up the hill to our final resting place. To be making human bricks for God's house on earth. Are we really dedicated to doing that? Are we resolved as children of God to keep being so, to to remember who we are, what Jesus did to make us so, to, to keep being God's children, to keep being dependent every single day on Jesus, our warrior dad, who, because of his strength and power and might and purity, gave us the right to become the children of God. I sincerely hope those things are the things that we do resolve to do this year and every new year until we also get to finish our climb and enter into God's completed house finally for us in eternity with him. Well, let me pray together as we close. Heavenly Father God, thank you and praise you so much for your word to us this morning. Father God, thank you for this wonderful psalm. Thank you for the wonderful reminder that it is you who builds your house here on earth, that it is you alone who grants salvation. It is you alone who saves to the uttermost. It is you alone who sent your son at Christmas that we've just been looking at over these wonderful past three weeks, and who sent his son to die, as we'll be looking at in Easter as we approach the end of this term, and and who rose again from the dead, uh, putting death to death and also having that fatal blow of victory over Satan. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus is the warrior father in this psalm. Thank you that he has saved us, and thank you that he is building his church here on earth. And Father God, I pray that we will be a church who is willing to have Jesus as our leader, to follow him and to follow no one else, to, to do what he wants us to do, to have our hearts changed and transformed and constantly charged by the living spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be people who are prayers, that We will be faithful in our prayers, that We will be faithful in reading our Bible, the, the instruction manual of the master builder, that we would seek the lost. So that we would have the same cares and concerns that Jesus, our builder, has has over us. Father God, I pray that all our desires would match up so that they are one in union with Christ and that this year will be a wonderful year where we keep those things the same, following the Lord Jesus, climbing that hill and never stopping until we approach God's presence in the future. Father God, thank you so much for this wonderful encouragement to us this morning. Lord, may it be that as we turn into a new year, we would be excited about what Jesus has in store for us, and that we would be ever dependent on him this year and every year as a church and as individuals we pray. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.